the state only has so much money. It can't fully fund every school district in the state. Um, we, we fund education on a, on a local, you know, with a, a significant local share, and we need to adjust for that so that the, uh, the wealthiest districts uh, aren't being overfunded by the state and the poorer districts are, are being properly funded. Right. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, here today with two experts from Citizens Budget Commission for a back-to-school episode with lots of important information about how New York schools are funded and how they spend their money, and the issue of New York City school overcrowding. So stay tuned for two parts of today's episode. You can find us at GothamGazette.com, and you can find CBC at CBCNY.org. On Twitter, we're at Gotham Gazette and at CBCNY, and I'm at TweetBenMax. For those unfamiliar, quickly, Gotham Gazette is a watchdog news publication published by Citizens Union Foundation, and CBC is the best nonprofit, nonpartisan fiscal watchdog looking at New York finances. On this podcast, we've teamed up to bring you discussion of important public policy matters, uh, attempting to tackle wonky material in more accessible conversations. So, Tell your friends, tell your colleagues and others about the podcast. You can find it in all places like iTunes and so on. So today I am joined by Dave Friedfeld, CBC's Director of State Studies, and Riley Edwards, CBC Research Associate. We're going to start with Dave, who you can find on Twitter at Dave Friedfeld. Hi, Dave. Hey, Ben. How you doing? (laughs) Good. How are you? I'm great. So for today's episode of What's the Data Point?, Our data point is $66 billion. Dave? So today's data point is $66 billion, which is how much New York school districts receive in revenue during the 2015-2016 school year. That includes state, local, and federal dollars. Uh, Today we released a blog with a great interactive map that lets you compare your school district with the regional and statewide averages for per-pupil revenues in the aggregate and also by revenue source. Kind of one of the big takeaways of the state's 674 districts. Uh, 15 districts collect more than $40,000 per student, while 11 districts collect less than $17,000, with a statewide average of about $23,600. Now, what they collect is obviously what they can spend, and year to year, some districts might spend a little more, a little bit less, but but in the aggregate, it's about the same. So when you break down the revenue sources of the revenues, um, there's even more variability. Some school districts getting less than 5% of revenues from the state, while others rely on state funding for more than 80 cents of every dollar they spend. Today's podcast will delve further into where the schools, where the state school districts get their revenues, as well as some interesting patterns that emerge when you look at things from a regional and a wealth perspective. We'll also be talking to Riley Edwards, one of CBC's research associates extraordinaire, who did an analysis of overcrowding in New York City schools, addressing five myths that are crowding out the truth in a discussion of overcrowding. Excellent. Great. Uh, So I'm excited to talk with both of you today. Uh, So Dave, your new report, your new blog post at CBC is called New York Per Pupil Education Spending is the Nation's Highest. Where Does the Money Come From? Most analysis of school finances looks at spending. Why are you looking at revenue? Well, revenues are really a proxy for spending. You can't spend more than you bring in, um, and every district basically spends whatever they bring in. Um, so by looking where the money is coming from, we can make recommendations on where changes should be taking place. 
um, as far as how money is uh, sent out, either at the state, federal, or local level. We end up focusing mostly on the state and local level since federal revenues are, are a pretty small part of the overall package. So you're looking at making recommendations about how money comes into school districts? Correct, about how, particularly how the state decides how much money to send to individual districts. Um, we've done a lot of work on that in the past, and, and we'll continue to do so in the future. So the revenues that school districts bring in, localities, and you say there's <laughs> many, many of these in the state, over 670 uh, school districts, money's coming in from state, federal, and their localities, and you're looking especially at what are the state decisions going into how that money flows from state coffers. We are, and, and there's kind of a, a back and forth. Um, so the as uh, localities bring in more money, either the state decides to, to put in more or less. Um, and, and we separate out the uh, the districts into 10 deciles based on district wealth, um, with one being the, the least wealthy and 10 being the wealthiest. And, and when you separate the districts out this way, you end up seeing a trend where, where spending per pupil, um, you know, kind of the, that proxy for revenues, um, was relatively flat for the first six deciles, and then it increased bit in the seventh decile as you get into it's more middle and upper middle class uh, school districts and then it skyrockets among that that top 10 percent of wealthiest districts um, while at the same time the share of local resources increases um, and the state share decreases so you say uh, there's a lot of variance among districts with where they get their revenues what does that range look like what's the cause here um, so uh, the total um, revenue is about 66 billion dollars our data point um, and $27 billion or, or 44% of that, um, on, on average for school districts, comes from, uh, from the state. Um, and that range goes from 4.4% all the way up to about 84%. Um, on the local level, uh, for how much, dis- how much uh, they provide, the average is about 53%, with a range of 6.7 all the way up to, to higher than 95% um, for some of the wealthiest districts in the state. So let me, let me clarify that with you, because those ranges are striking to me. I, I, I wouldn't expect to see ranges that wide. So you're saying of revenue that comes into some of these school districts of state money, sometimes these school districts go as low as 4.4% of their spending is that state revenue. And, and that's the districts that are spending a lot uh, of their local revenue, right? They Correct. have a higher tax base. Correct. These, these are very wealthy districts. Um, some of them are kind of like the vacation communities out on the east end of Long Island where you have a lot of taxable value um, as far as very wealthy, very large homes, um, and not a lot of students, because most of the people who own those very wealthy homes don't actually send their kids to school there. So instead you have the people who kind of live there and work there, um, and those are the the kids who end up going to those schools. And the district is able to raise a tremendous amount of money um, on that tax base, so they end up getting a small amount of state aid. And then at the higher end, there's districts that state aid to them is, it accounts for up to 83 and change percent of what they're spending. Correct. So there, there are districts that are that are very poor, that don't have a lot of taxable value, um, and, and they get a lot of money from the state on a per-pupil basis, um, and, and 83% of the revenue comes from them. And they still, one of the, the more striking things that, that we found is that when you look at their tax effort, which is kind of basically um, what their, their local property tax rates are, many of those districts that get a lot of state aid actually have pretty high taxes comparably because they have very little taxable value. Mm. So it's a, high, it's a high tax burden, but there's not that much wealth to be Correct. and income to be they, taxed. They have, to, they have to basically levy a very high rate in order to get a small amount of money. Um, and, and comparatively to those wealthy districts, it's much easier for them to raise the local money. And what's New York City look like within these numbers? Um, and, and of course, 
you know, we're throwing a lot of data at you, which we do on this podcast. You should look at the report as you're listening or after or before, if you can, uh, up on CBC's website. Um, but, but Dave, what does is, what is New York City's numbers look like there in terms of the school revenue? So uh, on average per pupil, New York City actually spends or, or receives in revenue a little bit less than the statewide average. They receive about $24,000 per pupil compared to a statewide average of, of almost $25,000. Uh, the state share is about 40% of that, um, whereas New York City local taxpayers contribute about 56%, and, the, and then the feds kick in uh, another 5%. And if I may, the state money that's coming to New York City is often regurgitated city money to begin with, right? Because New York City is a, you know, as we sometimes say, a donor uh Municipality. It, it, I mean, a lot of a lot of the state's revenues either come directly from city taxpayers or, or based on um, you know kind of uh, economic activity that does occur in the city. That's true. Um, but they uh, they get about forty percent, and they're about forty percent of the uh, the state's students. Right, and then the oh, that's interesting. Right, and then the city uh, revenue from the city is fifty six percent of what correct New York city receives. Interesting. Okay, so. Um, Moving along a little bit in in terms of what you're looking at with the revenues that come into school districts, um, wealthy districts are choosing to tax themselves at higher rates. Um, is there anything wrong with that, or what is CBC? What are you what are you looking at here? And you're saying some, is something off? Um, well, the the main takeaway from from our analysis is that the the wealthy districts are able to to raise that money easier than than the poorer districts, um, and that kind of one of the, the impacts of that is that two districts that neighbor each other, and this happens probably more so upstate than it does downstate, you can have a wealthy district right next to a poor district, um, and real estate values don't change that much just because you cross over that school district line. So you could have two comparably um, priced houses where the taxes are actually higher in the district that is performing worse um, compared to the district that's performing better. So you end up kind of pushing people out of those urban centers where you want to drive people, um, and it makes it harder for those uh, local districts to kind of build themselves back up. Um, and, and we think that those districts really need to have more targeted state aid, particularly through the foundation aid formula. Um, we've done a lot of work on that and kind of talked about how the, the formula has been um, changed in such ways that the uh, even the wealthier districts continue to get some money and that they probably get more than they, they should be. So that is that one of the big takeaways here when you look at the local tax revenues that uh, districts have coming in, that the state money that's that's being sent is sort of a, pr- a problem? It is. Uh, the, the, lo- the, the wealthiest districts, the, the, the top 10% um, that's spending $35,000 per pupil as opposed to the, the rest of the state average, you know, in that $23,000 range, um, they still get $4,500 per pupil in state aid. And, and that's money that could be better spent than those, those lower uh, wealth districts that, that really need those extra funds to, to get performance up and, and all those things. So it looks like on a regional basis, um, Long Island, the lower Hudson Valley spend the most per student, um, but they don't have the, the highest tax effort, as you say. No, they don't. Uh, that honor belongs to the Mid-Hudson Valley, which, which is also one of the, the um, higher spending regions in the state. Um, but kind of one of the more telling things when we're looking at the data was that the Finger Lakes region actually has the second highest revenue effort or essentially the tax rates. Um, but they're towards the very bottom of local revenue per pupil because they have such lower um, property values. Does that, does that mean that, that many people um, simply, those are areas where there's just many people not really paying a lot of taxes? Um, 
Well, it, it, what it means is that um, as a percentage of their value of their home. So if you have a, let's say, a $200,000 house um, in the Mid-Hudson Valley versus a $200,000 house in the Finger Lakes. Now, granted, property values are less, so the house, you'd presume it to be bigger in the Finger Lakes. Um, but they're paying vastly more taxes in order to, to raise basically the same amount of revenue per pupil once you get into the school district. Is the argument, is there an argument for saying to some of these localities, hey, you're getting some of this baseline state aid. Maybe you should look at lowering your local tax. I mean, that's that that, that argument has been made. Um, I think our, our argument would be that you shouldn't be getting the state aid anymore because you can raise money so easily and that you are spending so much money. You're spending so much more than the state average and many of the districts um, that really need it. And kind of a, a constant um, theme of education funding is that the, the poorer districts um, where you have higher needs, you have more English language learners, you have more students with disabilities, those those students actually need more money per pupil to be spent on them in order to get them that sound basic education. Um, but we end up seeing basically the reverse where more money is being spent on, on those kids that already have kind of the, the leg up. And so one of the um, focal points uh, examples in the report is you, on that note, you compare Long Island and, and Western New York, um, where obviously Buffalo is the central uh, urban center there. Mm. Um, what's going on in that comparison, and, and what, does it, what does it tell us? So uh, Western New York spends the least um, per pupil of any region in the state. Long Island spends the most. Um, and they kind of are, are flipped as far as the how much money gets spent in that, that highest decile. So on Long Island, as you as districts become wealthier, they spend more and more per pupil, even though they don't necessarily need it in order to, to meet that sound basic education requirement. Um, whereas Western New York actually does the opposite. They're one of the few re, few regions in the state that does that. Um, they spend more in the kind of the lower half, um, the poorer half of, of uh, districts than they do in the higher, and spending declines. And, and that's kind of what you, what you should expect to see um, because that's where the needs are. So. Um, on Long Island, as the districts are wealthier, they're spending more. But in Western New York, as the districts are poorer, they're spending more. Correct. And and you would think that in many cases, people would want the latter to be the case, that the districts mm -hmm. that need it more are getting an influx of more revenue and spending more. And that's been the argument, too, that a lot of people are making around, um, you know, funding in New York City. Yeah, and around the foundation aid kind of formula overall is right. that it's supposed to drive more funding. And, and the formula as it's currently drafted does drive more funding. It's whether it, it's correctly uh, accounting for all of the needs of the students in the poorer districts and whether it's sending too much money to those districts that, that don't have as much need. So to reiterate, and I think you've you know made this clear, CBC is sort of questioning whether the state should be subsidizing districts uh, that are spending almost twice the state average. There's politics right. involved here, though, of course, right? And that's and, and that's not something that most representatives from these areas are, are going to go oh, along with. Of course, they, doesn't they, mean you shouldn't put the recommendation they, out. Of course, they they, they want to yeah. they want to bring the money home to their district, and and we understand that, we acknowledge that, and we also understand that the districts that have been receiving, let's say, forty five hundred dollars per pupil from the state for the last thirty years, whatever. Um, you can't suddenly cut that off. Um, you need to phase it out, but but that phase out should begin. Um, I think many education advocates recognize that the state only has so much money. It can't fully fund every school district in the state. Um, we we fund education on a on a local, you know, with a, a significant local share, and we need to adjust for that so that the uh, the wealthiest districts 
uh, aren't being overfunded by the state and the poor districts are, are being properly funded. Right. So um, as we sort of wrap up our, our portion of this discussion on, on per pupil education, revenue spending um, in New York, I think we just alluded a little bit to sort of where we should look moving ahead, but give us a few things to look for in the months and maybe beyond ahead. Um, so the, you know, the executive budget doesn't come out until January, um, but before then... From the governor. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, before that, um, there's a court case that might might um, have results um, regarding school funding. It's for eight small cities, um, so that may have an impact on, on what the governor's executive budget looks like. Um, we're also looking at what's going on in D.C. with tax reform and also potential changes to the Affordable Care Act. Um, could that could build, change everything. It could. It can change. Mm-hmm. And, and even if those directly impact education, when the state has less money, they have less money for education. It's just just the way things go. Um, and then, and we're also looking at um, tax collections overall. Uh, the state has been taking a significant hit on personal income tax collections, especially um, really over the last two years. Every time a quarterly update comes out, they seem to be to be lowering their numbers. The last update being an exception. Well, a lot to chew on there, a lot to look uh, ahead to, but also you've obviously done a great job already of coming to some conclusions, coming to some analyses. Um, so thank you, Dave. And you. Uh, make sure you look uh, to CBC's website for Dave's new report. Um, and we're going to move into the second portion of our back to school episode here with Riley Edwards. Hi, Riley. Hi. So overcrowding in New York City schools is a major topic of contention, analysis, politics. You've actually been doing some myth busting on this topic. Um and you've identified five myths, which I'm going to ask you about individually, but for listeners, I'll just list them to start. Myth number one is there aren't enough seats for all of New York City's public school students. Myth number two is crowding is a pervasive problem in every district. Myth number three is middle and high school students face the worst crowding conditions. Myth number four is school buildings in poorer neighborhoods suffer from the most crowded conditions. And the final myth, number five, is that the current plans to build new schools will solve the problem. So these are five potent myths, um, and you have broken them down. But before we get into each of them, give us the background here on this. Yeah. So every year, New York City school principals fill out a survey about how the physical spaces in their school are being used. And then the school construction authority, which works with the DOE, we're going to call it the SCA, Uh, then applies standards it uses for how much space is required for different uses. For example, the space you need for a high school science lab is different from what you need for a typical third grade classroom. Then using these calculations, the SCA comes up with the total capacity of each school building. Then there's an annual report called the Enrollment Capacity and Utilization Report. It's often referred to as the Blue Book, which includes the capacity of each school and building, because sometimes there's more than one school in a building, or sometimes the school is split between multiple buildings along with how many students are actually enrolled there and the utilization, which is the number of enrolled students divided by the capacity of the school. So an overcrowded school has an utilization over 100%. Utilization over 100%. Okay. So this is complicated sort of mathematical formula sometimes. And there's some people that often look at the blue book and look at these numbers and they say you can't always apply just this basic formula to school crowding and school space. You just mentioned one of the big differences, you know, science lab versus a regular third grade classroom. Okay, so 
in some ways, we're sort of put, putting some of that discussion aside. Right. There may be distinctions between individual schools. This is the best way we have right now to standardize across the district to compare where things may be more crowded than in other places. And like in many large studies, you know, things will sort of tend to even out anyway, right? I yeah. mean, I mean we, we, that's why we, we do some of these analyses. Okay, myth number one. The myth is that there are not enough seats for all city public school students. So what we found is that there are plenty of crowded schools. As of the most recent Blue Book for 2015-2016, there's 785 public school buildings that are overcrowded with about 100,000 students over capacity. However, at the same time, there's 681 school buildings that had more capacity than they had students. They have available seats for about 150,000 students. Citywide, that adds up to about 46,000 seats of extra capacity. So there are enough seats for all the students. They just aren't necessarily located where the students are that need those seats. So that's an important myth to bust. Now, it's a vast, vast city, so of course that doesn't mean it's that easy to move those students around and make it all work, right? Right. You can't expect students to be commuting for an hour to get to a school that has seats. It's important, though, that we do what we can to move students around so that the space that we have is being utilized. And having those numbers is essential. I mean, the fact that the number of schools that are overcrowded, you say 785 school buildings versus the number of schools um, that have more capacity than they actually have students, 681, you know, those are not that far off. And there's about 100,000 students at schools that are over capacity, but space for 150,000 at those that are under capacity. So those are pretty, pretty important numbers um, writ large for people to hear. All right. Myth number two, um, that crowding is a, is a problem, a pervasive problem in every district. I mean, number one sort of gets at that already, right? Right. So New York City is divided into 32 school districts, and every district has at least one building that's overcrowded, and some districts have a couple dozen overcrowded buildings. But as of the 2016 Blue Book, out of these 32 school districts, only 11 have more students than total capacity. So in the other 21 districts that have available capacity, there are some things that could possibly be done to match student enrollment to the space that's available. Schools can be moved to different buildings. School zone boundaries can be altered. These things aren't easy to do, and they're often politically difficult, and they take time, but they can help the DOE make use of the space it has and avoid unnecessary expenditures on new buildings. That's pretty important to note. Um, 21 districts that could do some movement within their district, just within their district, uh, to to alleviate some of these issues. Now, of the 32 school districts um, where there's 11 that have more students than capacity, are they concentrated in certain areas? I, I always hear Queens right. um, has the most overcrowded Northeastern schools. Northeastern Queens has the most north, uh, most overcrowded schools as well as Southwestern Brooklyn. So um, Sunset Park, Bay Ridge, those and, areas. And I know Sunset Park um, is a place where there's some new schools coming and we'll obviously get to myth number five in a little bit. Um, but continuing on, so myth three, that middle and high school students uh, face the worst crowding situations. Yeah, so sometimes the image of crowding is focused more on older students, but what we found was that the reality is actually the opposite. 
As of the 2015 Blue Book, two-thirds of elementary school buildings were over capacity, compared to 43% of high school buildings and 24% of middle school buildings. So this means that middle schools could be a potential source for relieving crowding. For example, you could shift grades around to have K through 4 in, in an elementary school and 5 through 8 in what's now a middle school. Oh, that's interesting. Is there any movement on that? Have we seen that at all? There are some uh, places in the city where that has happened. There are also some K through 8 buildings. There are ways that's being those buildings are being used in creative ways Not but enough. It, it could be a larger shift mm-hmm. and do we know why that's the case is it because high schools have often been where the doe the city looks to sort of close schools there's more movement in high school students you know they're more mobile they can leave a school and go to another school do we have any or the population growth in the, because in the I elementary mean, schools? I don't think we can say for sure from what we've looked at so far, but part of it could be that elementary schools are more based geographically, geographically where students live and middle and high school students. Students tend to go to those based on their interests or where they get in. So there is some more shifting that's available, some flexibility there versus the neighborhood zoned elementary schools. Right. In New York City, elementary school students go to their sort of neighborhood schools and there's a lot more flexibility when it comes to middle and high schools. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Myth four, um, that school buildings in poorer neighborhoods suffer from the most crowded conditions. Yeah, so what we actually found here was that in higher income areas, a larger share of students went to crowded schools compared to in lower income areas. There's lots of ways to approach this, but what we did was we looked at the median household income across New York City. So half of households make more than that amount and half make less. As of the 2015 Blue Book, 57% of students in zip codes that were above the median household income went to school in crowded buildings. In zip codes below the median household income, 47% of students went to school in crowded buildings. So that's 10% lower than in the higher income zip codes. A couple of possible explanations for this exist. It might be more difficult for the SCA to find and obtain sites for new schools in areas where income is higher, properties more valuable, and maybe more developed. It's also possible that parents in higher income areas are more resistant to rezonings that would move students out of their current schools. So this sort of at a microcosm level ties a little bit into Dave's study about spending and, you know, that in some ways higher income areas often, um, you know, see more spending. Um, Here we have it that in higher income areas, there's more overcrowding, which um, we don't necessarily, as you say, it's a myth we need to bust um, that it would be the opposite. Um, So that's interesting. And maybe that's an area where, the city needs to think about, um, as you say, how do you find new sites for schools um, where the, where property values are higher or, or there's not as much available land. Um, myth number five, this gets to that issue. Um, plans to build new schools will solve the problem. Why is that a myth? So people who are concerned about school crowding often turn to new construction as the best solution. And that's certainly necessary in some cases where there isn't available capacity in other nearby schools or when enrollment in the area is growing so fast that it would soon fill up all the available capacity. But building schools takes capital expenditure at a time when the city's debt service is growing rapidly. So CBC takes the position that existing capacity should be utilized first and any new capacity should be targeted to where it's most needed. Our analysis of the current five-year capital plan for the SCA showed that about half of the new seats would go to districts that are currently over capacity, they have more students in space, and they're projected to grow further. Um, so according that's a good, that, that would be a good Right, thing? yeah, that's yeah, where so we that's would want to target right. these schools, okay. yeah. But it's only half. <laughs> right, yeah. 
Right. Um, and so then a quarter of the, the seats in this plan um, are for districts that are currently under capacity. So they already have available space and somewhere in the district. And enrollment is projected to decline further according to these demographic projections that the SCA uses. So it's possible there are pockets of crowding in these districts where, that are far from the parts of the district where there, there is available space. But in some dis districts, it may be possible to use existing available space so that you can alleviate those pockets of crowding rather than building new schools. So the big question there is, are you looking at ways to utilize the space before spending all this new money on <laughs> new, new seats and new right. schools? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we think the first step should be to use what they've got if it's possible to do that. Interesting. So you put this um, report out last year, this, this myth-busting report. Mm -hmm. um, now we're here in our back-to-school episode. Uh, school is starting another year. What should we be looking at next? Um, and when we talk about this five-year capital plan, changes can be made, right? It's a, it's a five-year plan, but it gets adjusted. Right. So what, what are we looking at here going forward? Well, we'll continue to do analysis on this. There'll be a new blue book out in November with updated numbers for capacity and enrollment at all these schools. We'll be looking to see if there's Is that based on this year or it's based It'll on... It'll be based on uh, capacity for the current year, yes. Yeah. Okay. So we get pretty good numbers here because principals are able to sort of fill out this information right. based on what they're seeing. Okay. Right. And there might also, as you said, be further amendments to the capital plan. So in the meantime, though, there are there have been some ongoing stories about rezonings and students being shifted around in different schools that we're keeping an eye on. There was a relatively high-profile school zone, school rezoning on the Upper West Side, which was passed last November. And recently, we heard that it started to result in reduced wait lists at some schools in the district. Overcrowding was only one of the reasons that they did this rezoning, um, but we're hopeful that the numbers there will keep moving in the right direction and maybe more neighborhoods in the city would be willing to take on the challenge of rezoning their schools to reduce overcrowding and make use of the existing space that they have in their districts. Right. That is not unique, right? That there are schools fairly close by right. where one is over capacity and one is under capacity and some maybe politically difficult things yes. could be done, but you can alleviate some of those issues and tackle perhaps other things like integrating schools, which is Right, part absolutely. Of it. There can be a lot of other benefits that come along with it. And change like that is hard, but it's valuable. It's a, pro a valuable process for people to go through. All right. Well, for our back to school episode, we've given you a lot of information there, both about uh, education revenue and spending across the state and in New York City, thanks to Dave Friedfeld. So you should look for his new report. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. And Riley Edwards, you should definitely check out her five myths about school overcrowding. Thank you, Riley. Thank you. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thanks for listening. Bye.